Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It's a weird combination, really, of boxing, storytelling, and competition. Expertise brings with it a very real flavour of understanding and authority. In non-fiction writing, it's essential. But what expertise can bring to fiction is something uniquely powerful. The dramatised worlds of good crime fiction novels may be compelling, but they can often drift too far from reality. But when the author himself is deeply connected to the world he's writing about, he can more easily balance the razor's edge of fantasy and realism to bring something that cuts terrifyingly close to the truth. Tony Kent is a top-ranking criminal barrister, and draws on his own career in his writing, living up to his reputation as one of the most exciting new names in crime fiction. His first novel, Killer Intent, found itself in the Zoe Ball Book Club in 2018, and since then he's released a new book every year. The three books, featuring the criminal barrister Michael Devlin and intelligence agent Joe Dempsey, are now even being adapted for television. And I'm delighted to say that Tony is my guest today. Chapter 1. Nowhere to go. Amid his burgeoning writing career, Tony spends much of his professional life in the courtroom or building cases. His case history is full of nationally reported trials, prosecuting and defending the most serious criminal allegations, including terrorism, corruption, murder, kidnap and fraud. But crime itself doesn't begin with a prosecution. It takes up root in the very fabric of our society. It's even embedded itself, in a small way, within Tony's own family. Before he began fighting crime, Tony was fighting opponents in the boxing ring, representing England as a heavyweight, winning a host of national amateur titles. The sport has given him plenty of pause for thought when considering the reasons why young people become enticed into crime. Needless to say, the world of boxing still captivates Tony to this day. Absolutely fascinated by it. I mean, I, I, I follow it religiously. I represent a lot of boxers. I'm very heavily involved in professional boxing. I represented Anthony Joshua, which is something that's fairly well publicised about me years and years ago. Um, we represent the people who deal with Tyson Fury, which makes for a very interesting situation now because, of course, they're uh, they're looking to fight one another, and we have interests in both sides. We represent uh, Barry. Well, we represented Barry McGuigan, Ricky Hatton, John Conti. So, some really big names. Um, and I, I'll never be able to step away from the sport completely. Unfortunately, I've stepped away from the punch bag a bit too for a bit too long. So uh, I'm blaming COVID, which is if you can hear me breathing a bit heavily, I'm still suffering the after effects on the lungs. Still long COVID suffering, are you? Yeah, it's it's it just hasn't got. I've had it twice, and the first time was bad. The second time has really done done some damage. So I need to get back in the boxing gym because I really think I need to get my lungs working again. But when it comes to sitting down and having a whiskey and watching it, yeah, that, that's still most weekends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the things that Mike Costello and I spoke about was the thing that often goes underreported with boxing, which is the discipline and the rigor that it gives to young men and women growing up in particularly inner cities. It gives them something to focus on. Um, Anthony Joshua, who you mentioned, has spoken quite publicly about the fact that he thinks that without the discipline and rigor of boxing, his life could have turned out very differently. We shouldn't underestimate that, should we? That is really, really important for young people growing up, the discipline that it gives you. 
Well, I really think it is. Um, if you look at my life, if you look at my family's life, I I'm one of four brothers and a sister, but one of four brothers. My two older brothers didn't box and have both spent a lot of time in and out of trouble. One of them, well, one of them his entire life uh, in and out of prison. Uh, my younger brother and I both boxed and neither one of us went down that route. And I think it makes a huge difference to you. A number of things. I think the discipline is, is you learn so much from the discipline. I also think that there is the, the no need to prove yourself. You know, as a young man, you don't have to prove yourself because you're getting in a ring and proving yourself against trained fighters every single day. And you often see the conversation about who would win from an MMA man against a boxer or a jiu-jitsu or all that rubbish. The reality is, if whether it's MMA, whether it's boxing, whether it's any of these things, if you are doing that training, then you're being taught to hit harder and faster and more accurately and for longer. Of course, you're going to be the best you can be in that scenario. You're going to be the best fighter, I guess, that you could be. And when you are that, 99% of the time, you've got nothing to prove. You're not the guy in the pub who's saying, just trying to show off to their friends because you've done it and you've done it against real fighters. And it, it makes a huge difference. But in terms of kids, I'm actually very heavily involved in a charity called Box Clever. And it's not inner cities because I live out in the country now in, uh, in Buckinghamshire, but it's the home counties. And what they do is... They open up boxing gyms a couple of hours early. So a gym that will be opening at seven o'clock for the boxers to come on in will be opening at five o'clock. So the kids that are otherwise hanging around the street have got somewhere to go. And they have a proper boxing coach who is teaching them. And there's no fighting. There's all the skills, all the fitness. No, none of the fighting. That's not allowed at all. And it means that these children who would otherwise be out looking for some distraction. They've got something to focus on and they're learning discipline and they're getting fit. And the guy who started it is a guy called Bob Williams, who's a uh, former professional boxer. He's a top um, fireman and is a top professional boxing referee. And Bob has been invited to the palace to receive awards, etc., uh, etc. Et because the one thing they've recognised is antisocial behaviour amongst a certain age group of children now in the home counties has gone through the floor because they've all got these things to go to. It's been terrible during COVID because they've not been allowed to open it, which is a real shame, but it makes a huge difference. In the build up to London 2012, I take you back before there were riots across the country after the um, shooting of Mark Duggan. And initially, those riots were racially motivated in the sense that that was a protest against the shooting of Duggan. But then as they spread across the country, there was a sense that actually some of these kids might just be bored to the point that you just made you know we have created a society in which they have been deprived of stimulation there isn't necessarily anything to do and therefore if there is something to do that happens to involve throwing a brick through footlocker then you know we're in because there's nothing else you know going on so if you fill that void with something like a boxing gym it does have an impact doesn't it well it has an enormous impact and if you look at crime now if you look at uh... If you, my, my day job, as you know, I'm a criminal barrister, so I'm dealing with this on a daily basis. The cuts to the criminal justice system are terrible, and they have had a devastating impact on criminal justice and well, just so many things. So such a huge part of our society is built upon our justice system, even if we don't realise it. And it's crumbling and it's falling apart. But what we rarely talk about, we talk about the cuts to the police. 
we talk about the cuts to legal aid we talk about the cuts to the cps we talk about the cuts to the courts and our court buildings the ones that haven't been sold off for apartments are falling apart and that's all true and that's all terrible what we rarely talk about is the cuts to social services and i don't mean people social workers social services in in, in the sense of things for kids to do um youth clubs youth clubs they just don't really exist anymore they've been completely wiped out um community clubs that children could go to community groups that children could go to the things like box clever that will mean where are you going tonight i'm going to the gym or i'm going to go and play football or i'm going to go and do my duke of edinburgh award or, or all of these different things they just don't exist because the government will not fund them the only thing that funds them is the lottery and you know as big as the lottery is it can only fund it so much and yeah, you know, they're funding a lot of different things and they really are the only funding left that i know a couple of charity-based boxing clubs that have asked me to assist them in getting lottery funding and it's really difficult simply because the lottery is overawed by this because the government have washed their hands of it and if children have got nowhere to go and they can't go home because their parents aren't in ultimately they are going to hang around with older kids because older kids are going to take advantage of them in a criminal way unfortunately because no one gets you know, no one is attracted to to the good kids who are who are off doing something you know, keeping themselves to themselves they're attracted to the visible kids and the visible kids are genuinely not the good kids and it's a terrible vicious circle and you see it obviously in the inner cities where it's at its absolute worst and that's where gang culture comes in but you also see it again in the home counties you see it with county lines drug dealing these poor kids riding about on their bike delivering cocaine to middle-class cocaine users who think that this is just a fun thing to do on a friday you can really really trace it back to the kids having nothing to do chapter two the courtroom On the surface, becoming an author might not seem like the logical next step for a criminal barrister, but there are more parallels between the professions than you might imagine. Building a case is literally pulling together the pieces of a story, and it's not enough to simply slot those pieces into place. The narrative of that story, the way it's delivered in court, the emotion that fuels it, all of these things are of the utmost importance when you're trying to change the hearts and minds of a jury. So the two arenas really aren't that far removed. If you are a particular kind of barrister, all, all barristers have a level of expertise in the law. The way I used to explain to people was a barrister was kind of like your surgeon while your solicitor was your GP. Your solicitor knew a hell of a lot about a hell of a lot. And then when it got very specific, they would go to the barrister because they knew even more about one thing. And so all barristers are, you know, you would hope, intellectually solid. Yeah, they have a level of expertise in what they do. Mine happens to be criminal law. But I think that when you get the ones who also very, very much enjoy what they do in court, then yeah, then the storytelling really comes in. There's an element of writing. There's an element of acting. I had, what, I had a guy say to me at a dinner party recently, you know what you need to do? You need to go and get some acting lessons. That would really help you out in court. And my reaction to that was, number one, you've never seen me in court. How do you know how good I am or how good I'm not? <laughs> and number two, and I did say this part to him because he said, yeah, because you are all kind of failed actors, aren't you? You're kind of like all repressed actors. And I said, no, no, what we are are actors who write our own lines. 
and who improvise and who do all the different things that you couldn't do. So stop insulting me. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, there is some truth in what he said. <laughs> there is a huge amount of acting involved, certainly the way I do it. Yeah, in terms of telling a story, it's all about the story. My, my approach to a trial, no matter how long the trial is, is that everything I do during that trial is a building block to the story. Everything I do is a brick in the wall that I'm going to build at the end. And if, if that's a three month trial, then those bricks are being laid three months before. If it's a three day trial, then it's not quite so intricate. But ultimately, it's all building to the speech. You know, I've I watched a uh, not a few good, but I watched a Time to Kill far too many times as a kid. Great film, and people will tell you totally unrealistic in terms of the speech. Come come and watch one of mine because I still try and do that speech every single time. <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah, it's very much storytelling. It's very much it's it's kind of that serious. It's a, it's a weird combination really of boxing because it's combative, storytelling, and competition. You know, real sort of fantasy acting and competition because you get yourself into a place where you just really want to win. I made a point the other day. I was doing a doing sort of a Zoom panel for the Two Crime Writers Festival, and it was just a bunch of lawyers. And we were having the conversation. I actually did say to them at the time, when you're running running a trial, you do by the end of it, no matter how ridiculous, by the time you stand up to make your speech, you think you're going to win. And I think it's it's just. It, I guess if I got into the ring with Muhammad Ali, I would think before I got in there, I was going to win. And he would absolutely wipe the floor with me. But I'd be thinking I'm going to beat this guy. And it's the same with these speeches. I don't think I can make a good speech unless I'm convinced I'm going to win. So I'll have people that I'll be saying on a Monday, you cannot fight this trial. You're crazy. You should plead guilty. They refuse. And you've got no choice but to represent them if they refuse. And having said that to them on the Monday, by the Friday in my head, I'm thinking, right, I'm going to smash this now. And I mean, so it's kind of like telling stories to yourself as well, because you're clearly not going to. It's the in a way, it's the perfect narrative, isn't it? We're fascinated by legal stories. I, I've both read and watched um, A Time to Kill and, and love both versions. I think the, the that end moment, there is a look that comes across Donald Sutherland's face just as that killer beat is landed in that speech that just really brings it to life. But we love these stories, don't we? Is it because it's a case of us in our minds imagining this is good versus bad? We don't necessarily know who to believe. The stakes are very, very clear. There's always high levels of jeopardy. Somebody is going to lose something. Somebody has already lost something. And then 12 people typically will have to decide who to believe and they will have their own competing belief systems and structures. It's it's all there, isn't it? Is that Do you think that's why we love that that genre so much? I think we love the genre because... It's very rare to see the wrong result in a dramatization of what we do. I think it's very common to see the wrong result in what happens in real life. I don't think the system can be bettered. I think we have an amazing system. Um, I think it's actually in, in disarray at the moment, but the, 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 the basis of our system is, is, is as good as it gets. It's very far from perfect, but it's a lot better than others. And I think that the one downside of it is we just don't know in real life whether this person is guilty or not guilty. I mean, people often say to me the cliche question of it, how can you represent a guilty person? And my answer is, well, I can't. Professionally, I'm not allowed to. If, I, if he tells me he's guilty, I can't represent him properly. I can go along to court and say, prove your case, but I can't tell the Crown they're wrong. So if he wants someone to, if he wants someone to do it properly, he's got to get a different barrister. So the reality is you can't really um, de defend someone that you know is guilty. 
but how do you know they're guilty? Because at the, at the end of the day, it's just my opinion. Whereas on a TV show or in a film, you have invariably seen them do it or you've seen them not do it. So you know that whether the guy in the seat, whether the guy who's being defended or prosecuted, depending on which way the focus or the point of view of the show is, you know if he's guilty. And so you're actually watching justice being done. And then they take the system and they take out all the boring bits and they accelerate it and they make it dramatic. And what I do for a living can be very dramatic. I, I, I actively make it dramatic. I, I started 20 years ago and I took the view 20 years ago a lot of people watch crime on TV and read the books and watch the films, but no one wants to be on a jury. Why is that? Because generally it's boring. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll make sure it's not boring. I'll approach this in a way that is a bit dramatic and does have a bit of flair and a bit of acting. And there are other, I'm not, I'm not alone in that, but I certainly made a, a concerted decision to, to perform in that way because I just figure if it's a 50-50, they're going to go with the guy that's entertained them, you know, the guy that they like. But the reality is, um, in a TV show or a film, it's net or a book. It's never 50-50. You know who did it. And if you had Perry Mason and you knew who did it in every episode and yet he kept losing, Perry Mason would get cancelled. Nobody would want to watch Perry Mason anymore. It's OK once in a blue moon for, for them to get it wrong. But you generally they have to get it right to maintain their audience. And I think that proves that really what we're watching is a dramatization of an already potentially very entertaining thing, the whole conflicts of good and evil as you identified, but also justice being done every single time and against the odds and with the twists and turns and with the ups and downs and the highs and the lows and all the other cliches. But ultimately, justice gets done, doesn't it? The, the innocent man gets off, the guilty man is convicted. That's how drama works. And people love that. In real life, it's not quite so clean. <laughs> Oh, it's fascinating. So during your, uh, you said, you know, 20 year career um, working um, across many, many different cases. I'll explain what it was like for me. I always had this desire to tell stories. I know that you have always been a fan of crime thrillers. And I think that what you're talking about in terms of the performance of being a barrister, I would certainly recognize in my own corporate career. I would, it, it was a performance. It was not necessarily grandstanding, but it was serving a particular purpose, which is I need you for the next 10 seconds to not look at your BlackBerry and to listen to what I have to say, because I have a nugget of purest truth that if only I could impart it to you, we might be able to save the world together. It's that kind of motif that we're riffing off. At what point, Tony, you know, throughout this, had you always had a desire to tell stories? Was this, because it feels to me like a very natural um, transition from not that you have transitioned you're still a, a criminal um, barrister to this day but the books that have come out I mean this is some side hustle right you, you've got a, a career as a criminal barrister you've also got the the incredible series of, of books where did they start how long into your career was it before you started to pen these stories because you and I have met a couple of times and I know that you have considerably more stories than have been published so <laughs> where where did the genesis of this come from well, the genesis of, of the of the books came from two things. The first was reading a book when I was 17 years old by David Baudacci called The Winner and realising that you could get books like that. I wasn't a great attender of school. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't go, but I, I spent a lot of my youth. There was no expectation in my family that any of us would finish our GCSEs. Uh, we, yeah, we were a building, big Irish building family and 
the expectation was we'd all become builders as, as everyone apart from me and my sister did and I was the first to do GCSEs in the family just there were plenty who were clever enough to do it, it just wasn't the way the way our culture I guess you would call it it just wasn't what we did so I, when I did go to school I'd read the things they told me to read and and that would be the classics and it would be Wuthering Heights and all of that business and books that I recognize are, are wonderful, but that I don't really want to read. I didn't enjoy them and I don't enjoy them now. And that's not to say anything negative about them. It's just not for me. A lot of people wouldn't be interested in reading John Grisham. I love reading John Grisham. So what happened was when I was 17 years old, having spent years just reading whatever I was told, I was, a, I mean, I was a voracious reader, but mainly of history and mythology and religion. I was very interested in religion. And never fiction, because my idea of fiction was the stuff that they told me to read in school. Then when I was 17, my uncle gave me the winner by David Baldacci. He said, you'll enjoy this. Have a read. And I read it. And within 20, 30 pages, I was completely blown away. I was like, you can write books like this. These books exist. I think very visually and I write very visually and everything I do is very visual in the in the manner in which I even down to performing in court it's all very visual there's a lot of hand movements as you can probably see now and um this was visual and I was casting it in my head in my head I was thinking Mel Gibson would be great for this character and I remember now looking back I remember thinking Charlize Theron would be great for the main girl but it couldn't have been because she wasn't even famous then so it's weird how your memory works isn't it but in my so I'm casting it and by that point, I need to read everything this man's written. It was his third book. So by the end of the week, I had written everything this man, read everything this man had written. And then I went on to Grisham and I went on to the rest of them. And I've got addicted to it. I really wanted to write something. And I was going through university and I didn't do any of that. I just spent the time boxing and drunk, one or the other. And then I was starting bar school. And just before, no, pupillage, I was starting pupillage, uh, which is the apprentice stage, as you know, before you become a barrister. I was about to start pupillage and I met a guy in a bar I went to school with who said, so uh, what are you doing with yourself? And I said, oh, I'm just about to go and do a pupillage. I've got into this incredible chambers, blah, blah, blah. I'm, about to, I'm going to be a criminal barrister, the thing I always wanted to be. And he said, oh, it's amazing you've achieved that because, I mean, well, you come from a family of villains, don't you? Now, I don't come from a family of villains. I have an older brother who is a very unsuccessful petty thief and so has been <laughs> in prison a lot. That doesn't mean we're a family of villains, but for some reason, yeah, you know, people just make they they believe what they want to believe. I think, yeah, we're we're yeah, we're a bit rough. We're all boxers and um, and builders, and I guess that I can I can understand where they may have got the impression from. But we're not a family of villains. But my reaction to that was, what a really good idea for a character. And that's where Michael Devlin came from. He came from a two a.m. in a pub in West London. Just that one comment. I got up the next day and I wrote the first three chapters of Killer Intent and I was 22. And then I started pupillage and didn't touch it again for 10 years because I discovered that a career as a barrister is fairly all encompassing and to succeed at it. And I succeeded quite well to succeed at it. It takes over your life and you are either working or you're on holiday and there is no in between. You're working, you're in the pub or you're on holiday. And if someone phones you and you don't have a foreign ringtone, you answer and you do that work. And it really does take over your life if you let it. And I let it. And so for 10 years, I didn't touch it again until I was 32 or 33. And then I had a case that wasn't really, it was a long case, but I was, I was, I was for somebody who wasn't involved in 99% of the case. And I was waiting, for, it was a three month trial. And there was just nothing for me to do for three months while we waited for this single day 
where the evidence mattered to this client. And so I dug out my old my old computer and quite tellingly, I'd kept the computer. I'd gone through three or four computers in that 10 years, but I'd kept, the only one I'd kept was this one at the back of the wardrobe. So I dug it out, took the, I think took a CD and turned that into a USB because they hadn't existed back then, put it into a laptop, which was now 10 times thinner than they used to be uh, in the time it had taken me to get back to this book. And then I sat and during this trial, when I had nothing to do for a long time, I, I ended up writing what became Killer Intent. So it's a long process. It was a long process. I was obsessed enough with my other career and getting success at that career that I didn't, that, that, that writing was able to be on a big back burner. But when it came back, when I finally sat down and started doing it again, it went from nothing to a complete obsession in the course of about a year. And then within a year of having then written Killer Intent, even without having done anything with it, I hadn't taken it anywhere. I hadn't sent it out. I'd done nothing with it. I had decided I needed to be a writer. And I changed my life completely. I left my chambers. I set up a small firm with a friend of mine. And the whole idea was to get some control back on my life so I could also divide my time and be a writer. It's been a disaster. Um, the firm we set up, the firm we set up took over my life even more than that job did. And I touch wood as I say this, it's, it's become an enormously successful law, law firm. Uh, and, it's, and it's now, I'm now working even harder than I ever did. And yet, despite the fact it means I don't get ready to sleep anymore, I'm still, still compelled to do the writing. Chapter three fortune of fame. As we've mentioned, Tony's first book didn't just come out, it made a spectacular and extraordinary entrance onto the scene. This is a side hustle on steroids. For some people, this sort of departure from normal life can provoke intense reaction from fans and critics alike, some who see it as an authentic extension of who you are, and others who view what you're doing with hostility and suspicion. Luckily, Tony's monumental shift in direction didn't seem to attract negativity for a few interesting reasons. The support that I got from my peers, from other barristers, has been enormous. And I mean, they, they really do embrace it. And I, I think maybe it's because the bar is in such a bad state and that they look, I mean, it really is in a terrible state, the publicly funded bar. Um, I don't do a huge amount of publicly funded work because it just doesn't pay anything anymore. Uh, but most barristers have no choice but to do that because they as I said, yeah, the thing that I did going off and setting up a firm turned out fortuitously to protect me from what's happened to the bar. But the rest of them didn't do that. So they're still suffering the consequences. And I think anyone who did something different, they have respect for. They look at it and think, well, yeah, you've got your way out. Well done. There's also the reality that there is a there's a small amount, a very, very small amount of very minor celebrity that goes with this. And I am fascinated. A very small amount. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but if, I mean, the Zoe Ball book club and then the Richard and Judy book club and all the TV stuff that I did, minor as it is. And I, and I do quite a bit of TV stuff now talking about true crime for uh, for these shows on Channel 5 and all that kind of business. Tiny and inconsequential and non-existent, really, as that celebrity is. It's fascinating what any form of celebrity does to, 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 every, uh, to, to intelligent people who are, who are dealing with newsworthy cases. I remember, I won't, I won't name him, but he was the head of the of the Criminal Bar Association uh, and an old friend of mine, top QC. I mean, top QC, and at that point was running our profession. 
And I saw him in the old Bailey. And as I walked off, I heard him saying, do you know who that is? That's the famous writer, Tony Keller. It's like, A, I'm not a famous writer. B, you're a famous barrister. <laughs> and, and I'm not one of those. It's just incredible how that affects people. It really is. So I think I was extremely lucky that the Zoe Ball Book Club catapulted me past where I really was. Yeah, uh, and then the mark, the mark for death with Richard and Judy did the same, and it's very misleading, and it's very, it, it can give you. I mean, if, if your feet aren't on the ground, you could get very pretentious about it because you suddenly go from being just just another person turning up at festivals who's written a book to being someone who has turned up out of nowhere that everyone's heard of because your book is on this TV show. It doesn't make the book any better. It doesn't make you any better. It doesn't make anything. It means nothing. But it just there is that element of you. There's name recognition, and that name recognition, I think, is what I mean when I say the minor, minor celebrity thing. And God, it's minor. Please don't don't take don't misunderstand me at all. It really is nothing. It's so inconsequential. But at the same time, it's just the world we live in is now one where name recognition is sort of. It's like someone's giving you a gold star, and everyone now has to worship that gold star. It's very strange. It is very strange. Um, let's just linger on Michael Devlin and his exploits. Um, we've talked about the the, the first um, two books. I know from previous conversations that you've said you have many very difficult situations to put Mr. Devlin into, I'm sure, uh, moving forward. Just give us a sense, Tony, how big do you envisage this being? I know that you've taken some of the stories at the moment you've been working with television or actually with the film producer to, to, to bring those to the to the small screen but in terms of the books that we hold in our hands how many stories could this run to well i'd like to just think i could uh, i would love to say i could emulate the success of lee child and but that would be an, a, an enormous <laughs> assumption because who has done that but in terms of the scale of what lee child has done i, I would take that as, as kind of an aim i see no reason that i can't keep putting these books out once a year, who knows, maybe at some point in my life, twice a year, but certainly once a year for the foreseeable future. Um, I've, I'm just about almost finished with book four. Um, I'm going straight into book five. We didn't release, we are releasing in 2021. We released Power Play, the third book in 2020, but unfortunately I released it in the second week of the first lockdown. And what everyone... The human nature is such that we that we forget how bad things were and we all moaned about the most recent lockdown. People need to remember what the first lockdown was like. First lockdown, yeah, you, you, you had to stand outside Sainsbury's. They sold nothing but the essentials. There was nothing else open. You couldn't go to Holland and Barrett. You couldn't go to W.A. Smith. You had to go to Sainsbury's. That's when my book came out. All the bookshops were closed. All the railway stations were closed. All the supermarkets sent their books back because they weren't stocking them anymore. So I went from Zoe Ball Book Club, Britain and Judy Book Club to no one's allowed out and no one knows your book exists. And that's where we went with Power Play. I think we sold about 20,000 copies, I think, or 15,000, 20,000 copies, which isn't bad, but is negligible next to what I sold in the first two. And so we've kind of taken a hit with that. And I said, I don't want, I don't want to release another book until we know where we are. And so we're going to release towards the end of the year a hardback of, of book four. So, so there's been that almost a year and a half gap rather than the normal year gap. But with that exception, I'm going to I'm going to hope, as we all do, that we're not going to live through this once in a century madness again. And so hopefully we we'll go back to the one a year, 12 monthly release of a Devlin Dempsey book. 
and I say Devil and Dempsey because I'm not, all my books aren't about both of them. Um, you know, Killer Intent is all about them both. It's very much Michael Devlin's book because you find out all about him and Dempsey's doing his job. It's 50-50 in terms of how much they're in it, but it's more about Devlin. Mark for Death, very much a Devlin book. Very, very much. I mean, Dempsey's at the end of a phone in one scene. Power Play is, I, th I think, and I always look at it as being Dempsey's, Mark, Dempsey's Killer Intent because you spend more time with him than you do with Devlin and you get to know him a lot better. You find out more about his background, his personal life, and what makes him Dempsey. Book four, the one that I'm writing now, is Dempsey's Mark for Death, because Devlin is not in it. So it's a purely Dempsey book. Book five will be a 50-50 again between the two of them, um, which will all be set in the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where Devlin will be uh, defending a war crimes trial. I'm very, very, very keen on this one, because... I want him to represent an innocent man who we hate. Because as going back to what I said to you earlier, the, the, the question that we get asked a lot about um, how can you defend it, how can you defend a guilty person, all that kind of business. Well, this is kind of a twist on that. I want to show people uh, that, that another thing that lawyers do that we don't really get that doesn't really get recognised is I'm going to have somebody who is innocent, but in every other respect he needs to be punished. In every other respect, he's a complete reprehensible piece of whatever. And I like the idea of, of having to explain in this book or get across the ethos of Devlin, which is, I don't care what he is. I don't care what he's done. He didn't do this. And it's about justice. It's not about, it's not about kicking someone we don't like. It's about justice. And at the same time, we'll obviously have Dempsey in there bringing the action in a few side plots that will all twist in the end. So, yeah, so... My idea is to keep coming back to them and I'll have plots that are just Dempsey. I'll probably have more plots that are just Dempsey because an international intelligence agent can get himself into more scrapes than a criminal barrister. But I'll also have plots that are, Dem that are Devlin. Book six, I've got a very good idea at the moment that it's a Devlin-only idea I want to go with. But what I really enjoy is building this world around them and seeing this world grow around them. And I've got an idea for a um, for a book set in New York where... Dempsey is investigating what seem to be some terrorist-based murders. And at the same time, there are a couple of New York cops investigating some other murders, which will ultimately all be linked in because that's pretty, you know, that's kind of how I write. I had noticed that. Yes. <laughs> and then I've got, but I've got an idea that ultimately, after that's been done, I'd quite like to write a book about the two cops without Dempsey and without Devlin. So, so it's kind of that the world is expanding, the universe is expanding a bit. I think I said this to you before, but I kind of get inspired by the Marvel universe. I mean, it's nothing like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's, it's, it's not quite so ridiculous. Some of it's probably a bit ridiculous. But I love the idea of, of everyone inhabiting this same universe and their paths will cross and then sometimes their paths won't cross and it just depends upon the book. And I don't think it's, it's been done. I know it's been done. I mean, Tom Clancy did it to an extent, but I don't think it's been done quite in the manner that I hope to do it. So I've got, I've got big plans, I think, is the answer. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we wish you all the very best of luck, not just with the writing of book four, but books five, six, seven, eight. We'll just keep going. <laughs> Tony Kent, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me. Cheers, Mark. Thank you very much. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Tony Kent for today's episode. And to recap... What have we learnt? Creating visual representations of your characters can help you refine their personalities. Try imagining which famous actor would step into the role of your character, or take more than a little inspiration from the people in your life. 
When writing characters, don't deal in absolutes. Tony's toying with the idea of an innocent character who will dislike regardless. Remember, there is rarely a clear divide between good and evil in life, and that should be reflected in your writing. There's no use stepping into the ring if your heart isn't in it. You have to believe that you're going to win, that you're going to be successful, otherwise you never will be. The same is true when you're beginning a writing career. Make defeat an impossibility in your mind. People often have the habit of making wild and outlandish assumptions about others. In Tony's case, he used an assumption about him and his family to create a fantastic idea for a character. Whether it's an insult slung your way or levelled at somebody else, turn that negativity into something positive. Thanks to COVID, Tony's third book didn't sell as well as he'd liked. You might be itching to launch your latest book, but maybe pause and consider the timing of it all. I'm not saying right now is a bad time, because it's been incredible for many, but at least take the wonky state of the world into consideration. And finally, if you're lucky enough to enjoy success and even a little bit of fame because of your work, don't let it go to your head. Name recognition is important and you should enjoy it. Just don't go getting all pretentious on me now. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Do let us know what lesson you've taken from this week's episode, if you can narrow it down to just one, and share any suggestions for future guests or discussions. We'd love to hear from you. You can either give us a like or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Behind the Spine. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.